we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. To find out a deep, abiding, unshakable honesty, which is integrity and wholeness, is to discover a state of the brain in which there is no movement at all. Hello and welcome to episode 178 of Urgency of Change. Each episode of the Krishnamurti podcast is compiled from carefully chosen extracts from the archives representing different approaches to many of the fundamental issues and questions that we all face in our lives. This week's theme is wholeness. Upcoming themes are nationalism, the present and wisdom. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust based at Brockwood Park in Hampshire, UK. Brockwood is also home to Brockwood Park School, a unique international boarding school offering a personalised holistic education for around 70 students. It is deeply inspired by Krishnamurti's teaching, which encourages academic excellence, self-understanding, creativity and integrity. Please visit brockwood.org.uk for more information. You can also find our regular Krishnamurti quotes and videos on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, which helps our visibility. This week's episode on wholeness has four sections. This first extract is from Krishnamurti's first talk at Brockwood Park in 1980 titled, A Sense of Wholeness, of Global Reality. The world is so fragmented, more and more every year, breaking up, not only religiously, but also politically, economically, ideologically, and so on. Everyone throughout the world is concerned about their own little selves, their own little problems. Not that they are not important, they are, but we must consider the whole of humanity, not just our little shrine or our little guru or our little belief or our particular idiosyncrasy, and particular activity. Because we are concerned, aren't we, if if one may point out, that all humanity, whether they live in India or in Europe or in America or in China, Russia, 
all humanity goes through this terrible struggle of existence, not only physically, outwardly, but also inwardly, psychologically. This is the common factor of all human beings throughout the world. I do not know if we realise this sufficiently to have a global, a point of view that is whole, not fragmented. And as human beings living in this particular country or another, We are like the rest of mankind. We suffer, we have problems, we have untold misery, confusion, sorrow, the fear, the attachments, dogmatic beliefs and ideals and so on. This is common to all human beings throughout the world. So psychologically, we are the world. And the world is us, each one of us. This is a fact. As a toothache is a fact, this is a fact. It is not an idea, it is not a concept, it isn't something you one strives after an ideal, but an actual, daily, factual happening in all our lives. Either you can make this into an ideal or an idea, and then try to conform or adjust yourselves to that idea, or treat it as an actual fact that we are basically at core of our being like the rest of humanity. You may be tall, you may be short, you may be brown, white, pink, black and purple, outwardly. You may have techniques that are different from another, different kind of education, different métier, jobs and so on. But inwardly, deep down in all of us, there is this tremendous sense of uncertainty, insecurity, sorrow, unimaginable pain and grief, loneliness. This is the common ground on which all human beings stand. That is, we, as human beings, are the rest of the world, and the world is us. And so our responsibility is something global, not just for my family, for one's children, those are important, 
but we are responsible for the whole of mankind, because we are mankind. But our beliefs, our ideals, our cultures, experience divide each one of us. We are Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, Hindus, Muslims, or the la- following the latest guru. This is what is breaking us up. Our nationalities, our insular, particular attitudes. And this attitude brings about fragmentation in our lives. And where there is fragmentation, there must be conflict between various fragments of which you are made up. Please, if I may point out again that we are thinking together, you are not merely listening to the speaker, or trying to find out what he wants to say. We are together examining the whole issue of our life. It's our life, your life. It's not somebody else's life. And that life, which is so fragmented, by our education, by our nationalism, by our religious concepts and ideals, dogmas, images. These are the factors that bring about fragmentation in our life. And we listen to all this, perhaps casually or seriously, with passing interest, or, if you are serious, not merely intellectual or emotional or romantic, but we are profoundly serious. Then the question arises, What is our relationship? What is our responsibility to the whole, not only to the particular, to the whole of mankind? The responsibility that, as a human being who is essentially, basically, the rest of mankind, you may not like to believe that. You might not like to feel that you are merely an individual and what have, the, what have one to do with the rest of mankind, which really is quite absurd if you go, go, go into it. We are the mankind. And so when we realise that, not intellectually, not verbally, but deeply, profoundly, as something 
terribly real, not as something romantic, emotional, but something that is actual in our daily life. Then what is our responsibility to the wholeness of mankind? Please, if I may ask, put yourself this question. One feels responsible for one's children, wife, husband, girl, boy, whatever it is, because you are intimately connected with them. You have to bring them up, education, and so on. Early livelihood feels certain amount of security, so you gradually restrict the wholeness of life into a small, narrow little groove. And having such mentality, one is disinclined or repulses, throws up, puts aside the responsibility to the whole of mankind, not only the mankind but to, all, to the earth upon which we all live. We are responsible for all that, ecologically, economically, spiritually. But if we cling to our little images, however reassuring, comforting, satisfying, then we bring about a great fragmentation in our life, and that prevents all of us from seeing the totality of mankind. Please. Do pay attention to what I'm saying. I'm not trying to convince the speaker is not trying to convince you of anything. Not trying to persuade you, influence you, or direct you. I'm not your guru, thank God. Gurus are absurd, anyhow. So, realizing that, that we are together investigating this problem. And when the speaker says together, he means it. Because the speaker can talk to himself in his room. But since we have all gathered here together in the difficult circumstances with rather foul weather, it behoves us to apply our minds and our hearts to find out a way of living that is whole, complete, not fragmented, 
because the world is now becoming more and more distorted, destructive, disintegrating, and degenerating morally, ethically, spiritually, if you can use that word spiritually. And we are part of that world. We are part of that society in which we live. We have created that society, whether the Christian society or the communist society or the Hindu, Muslim and all the rest of it. We have created it. Our fathers, our grandfathers, the past generations of our generation and we who have followed them, we have made this society what it is, corrupt, In, there is injustice, war, man against man, infinite violence. And when one is confronted with all this, not as a picture, not as a descriptive analysis in a newspaper, but when one is actually faced with it, which we have to, we are facing it now, in our daily life, what's our responsibility? What shall we do? See, our minds, our brains are so conditioned that we have, can't find an answer for this. We look to somebody, trot off to India, to some guru, and find out if he has a system, a method to solve this problem. They haven't got it. They have got their own systems, their own absurdities, their own megalomaniac ideals and so on. But when you are confronted with this, as each one of us is, whether we are young or old, what is our reaction? What shall we do? find out what is right action in all this, not right according to somebody or some value or according to one's experience or according to some ideological concept. Such concepts, conclusions, do not bring about right action. When we use the word right, we mean that it's precise, accurate, irrespective of circumstances. What is the right action in all this? In this mad, rather insane world in which we live, 
to find out what's right action, not right according to me, to the speaker, or to some philosopher or psychologist, but to find out for ourselves an irrevocable right action, which will be right under all circumstances. First, to to discover that for ourselves one must be totally free from all attachment. For attachment breeds corruption. If one is attached to a person, you can see the consequences of that attachment, jealousy, antagonism, fear, the loss, the loneliness. So where there is this particular form of attachment to a person, corruption is inevitable. But to cultivate detachment is another form of corruption. Right? I wonder if we understand all this. If one is attached to an ideal, you can see very well the consequences of that ideal. One becomes violent and is always trying to conform to a pattern that you have that thought has established. And you're never facing the fact of what is actually going on, but rather comparing what is going on with what should be, which is another form of corruption. If you are attached to an eye to an image and that's one of the most difficult things because each one of us has some kind of image about ourselves or about or an image created by thought in a church in a temple in a mosque and so on so on those images are very comforting reassuring giving us a tremendous sense of security, which is no security at all. And again to to be attached to an experience, to hold on to an experience, some experience that you have had, talking or walking by yourself in a wood, you suddenly come or feel this oneness with nature, that there is no division between you and the world about you, this sense of wholeness. It happens, and that is an experience which is registered in 
in the mind, in the brain, and then one clings to that. And one is then lost in past memory, something that's dead and gone. And when a mind clings to something that's finished, withered away, corruption begins. I hope, one ho- if I may, speaker may point out, you are not merely listening to the words of the speaker, but you are investigating into yourself, seeing actually what is going on within yourself. The speaker merely acts as a mirror. And the mirror has no value. You can break it, and one must break the mirror. That mirror is merely to see oneself actually what is going on inside. How we are attached to all these forms of persons, ideals, concepts, conclusions, prejudices. Experience, which is the beginning of corruption and fragmentation. If you have one image and I have another, being born in India or you born in America or in Russia or here, we have created that image in ourselves, and that image separates us, and so destroys this feeling of wholeness. The sense of global reality of our life. The second extract is from the fifth talk in Sanan, nineteen seventy three, titled Can Wholeness Be Brought About by Thought? I have heard you talk about it. I have heard you say to me, knowledge is very limited, it's mechanical, and being very mechanical we try to escape through religions, through sex, through uh, idiosyncrasies, through neuroticisms, through the desire to fulfil ourselves in something apart from this work, I've heard you say that, and I see the truth of it. But yet what am I to do? What am, how am I to live in harmony – please listen to this – to live in harmony, having knowledge functioning in knowledge, and also freeing the mind from this mechanical process of learning, so that the two run together. You understand? You are following what I am t- So that I, the mind lives, going to the factory, working, 
without competition, you follow? Because it doesn't, it's not concerned with achieving a position. It's only concerned with uh, achieving a livelihood. I don't know if you see the difference. And also it sees very clearly the freedom from the known, right? Which is the knowledge, which is the past. Can these two streams move together harmoniously all the time? You are following the, my, your question, sir? Am I answering your question? Huh? That's, that is our problem. Not the problem of earning more, more and more and more and more, which is what society wants, which is the consumerism, which is commercialism, which is by, you follow all the tricks they are playing on the mind to make you buy, buy, buy. I won't. I see the f- And I see at the same time the freedom from the known, which is knowledge. Can these two work together all the time? So that there is no friction. You've understood my question? Now, what is harmony? You understand? That's the problem. I see I must earn a livelihood. I won't fight, I won't compete. I I will work, because I put my brain, my capacity into it. Therefore I work very efficiently, because I have no psychological problems with work. I am not competing with anybody. Therefore my capacity, my energy, my way of writing, producing, whatever it is, is complete. Therefore there is no conflict in it. There is no wastage of energy. Right? I hope you see this. And so I'm asking, what is harmony? You understand? I say there must be harmony between the two. Now, what is this harmony? Can harmony, the sense of balance, the sense of sanity, the sense of feeling whole, work, knowledge, and freedom from that is the whole. Can that sense of wholeness be brought about by thought, by investigation, by reading, by searching, by asking? Or does this wholeness, sense of completeness, come about Can thought bring it? Therefore, thought cannot bring it, obviously. So seeing, please see this, seeing that thought cannot bring about it, seeing that I shall work efficiently with full energy because I have no psychological problems, you follow? And therefore, I am only working 
to earn a livelihood for self-sufficiency. And I see the whole thing must work together. And it can only work together when there is intelligence. So intelligence is harmony. Are you getting what I'm talking about? Wait a minute, I'm finished. Just a minute, I'm just, I'm just searching myself. Look, sir, it is intelligence that says, work only for a livelihood, not for ambition, not for competition, not to succeed, to have a, you know, all the rest of it. Work. That's part of, that's life. It's the intelligence that has told me, not a conclusion. And also intelligence says to me, freedom is necessary. So the intelligence says there must be harmony. So intelligence brings about this harmony. I, not outside agency brings about this harmony or thought. Now, I don't know if you have noticed, sir, thought is always outside. Right? Thought is always from the outside. I was told the other day that in the Eskimo language, thought means outside. Right? So, thought is not, cannot possibly produce harmony, balance the sense of wholeness, because thought is outside. But what brings about this total sense of integrity, this sense of sanity, wholeness, intelligence, the intelligence is not the intellectual acceptance of an idea. It is not the product of reason, logic, though reason, logic must exist, but it's not the result of that. It is the perception of truth from which arises wisdom. Wisdom is the daughter of truth and intelligence is the daughter of wisdom. Right? I got it. Huh? Do you see it? Now, if, so do work at this, you understand, sir? Just look at it, drink it, and then it, it is your, it is there. You don't have to struggle, read books, and go through all the tortures of life. The third extract is from the third question and answer meeting in Sanan, 1984, titled A Deep Abiding Wholeness and Integrity. Integrity is related to honesty. Integrity 
is the quality of the brain or one's existence which is whole, holistic, not fragmented. Our lives are fragmented. Integrity, not to something that one has conceived to be true, conceived, thought out to be true, and live according to that. That is a form of a way of living which is fragmented, because thought has invented a, a concept, an idea, something according to which one lives. which is then brings about fragmentation. One conceives something to be true, logical, say, conceives the idea and tries to live up to that. Right? That naturally brings fragmentation, breaks a, a break. You have conceived something to be true, imagined, experienced, and you try, one tries to live according to that, which has nothing to do with actual fact. And so there is always this fragment, fragmentation going on in our lives. And there's partly brings about dishonesty. The idealist is really quite a dishonest man. Forgive me for saying this, because he is living according to a preconceived way of life. I must live according to that pattern, which is nothing to do with daily life. And so there is conflict that breeds hypocrisy. So is it possible to live in this world with total honesty, integrity, a sense of doing the right inwardly, not externally, but first inwardly, to see that one, one's behaviour, one's conduct, one's way of thinking is completely free of illusions, not dependent on some fanciful concept or on persons and so on, that requires tremendous integrity, so that one never says anything that's not true to yourself. The, what is true to oneself is rather difficult too, 
because one may say it's my opinion and I, that is true. And if one lives according to one's opinions and therefore come into conflict with other people who have also strong opinions, there's a battle going on. Right? This is this are all daily facts. And is it possible to have such clarity? To see things exactly as they are, not according to one's wishes, desires, and all the rest of that business, but to have such clear, logical, sane brain that is not persuaded by personal desires, motives, and dependence. And the demands, we should also go into very briefly, which we talked about the other day, time. May we go into a little bit? We are, we are friends now, after ten days, no, three weeks. We are friends now, so we can talk to each other quite easily, casually, and with great sense of humour and sense of friendship, so that we can, both of us, look at things together. As we were saying the other day, time is the past, all the memories that one has accumulated, all the experiences and so on, which is the background. That background is operating now. As you sit there, we, we are sitting there here, and the, when you listen to the words, you translate those words into certain meaning, and that meaning depends on your past um, knowledge and so on. So the present contains the past. There is no question about that. That's same. And also the future, the tomorrow, is contained in the now, which is the future is part of the past. Right? Together, the, the past modified in the present proceeds tomorrow, which is the future. So tomorrow is now. Huh? I am one is angry for what reasons. If that anger is not understood, put an end to, I will be angry tomorrow again. 
or perhaps not tomorrow, next week. So the future contains in the now, right? Have we this clear? So the now contains all time. Right? Are we together in this little bit? The future, the past and the present is now. And the now is both time and thought. Right? Thought, which is memory stored up as knowledge and so on, which is the past. Knowledge is always the past. And that past passes through the present, incidents, pressures, modifies itself, and goes on. So the past is the future, and the future is now. And can one understand this whole process, this movement? It is a movement, isn't it? From the past, through the present, to the future, is a constant movement, a cycle. And that cycle is our life. And can one remain? Please, I was thinking, we were thinking about it early this morning, looking at it. Can one remain in the now, which is all time, without any movement? This is, you understand? Movement is time. Right? To go from here, there, or learn a language and so on. It requires time. Any movement in any direction, horizontal, vertical, and so on, or symmetrical, is time. Any movement. And to have this sense of living totally in the now, without any movement, either of thought or of action. You understand all this? Not to see that time, thought, is contains in the now. And that not... And any movement away from it is caught again in time and thought. I don't know if you follow me. So, integrity or honesty and a sense of 
wholeness is a quality of brain in which there is no movement except the brain has its own rhythm. Well, it's all Greek, probably. It's very serious, this. Because we're always active, going round and round and round in circles. We never break the circle. And this constantly going round and round not only makes the brain quite dull, but also it breeds a mechanical way of life. And a mechanical way of life is not honest, it's repetitive. So to find out what is the deep, abiding, unshakable honesty, which is integrity, a wholeness, is to discover a state of brain in which there is no movement at all. This, of course, is part of is part of meditation, which we have talked about, which we won't go this morning. And that non-movement has its own action in life, because towards action is doing something. achieving something, fulfilling something, in something, which is a movement from the centre to the periphery. I don't know if you follow all this. And that's what we are used to. And Where there is no movement, there is a wholeness, and from that wholeness there is action, which is never, which can never bring about conflict, right? I don't you understand all this. I wish you would. Not that I am helping you, which is a bit terrible. But if we could work together, see this thing, it radically brings about fundamental change. Because the brain has become so conditioned, so small, it has lost its infinite capacity. Because the brain has infinite capacity. 
Look what the technological world, what they are doing, what extraordinary capacity has gone into it. Computers, submarines, aeroplanes, you know, extraordinary things they are doing. And as the brain has that ex- tremendous capacity in one direction, we are not using the brain, the brain is not exercising itself in another direction, which is inwardly. You understand? And when both externally and inwardly, both of them operating together, there is something tremendous. The final extract in this episode is from the fourth talk in Madras, 1974, titled A Mind That Is Whole, Not Fragmented. You desire to have enlightenment. You desire moksha, liberation, or heaven, or whatever you call it. You desire it. And you work for it, if you are serious, if you are not playing with it and most of you probably are, but if you are serious, you then set a direction. You say, I'll do these things regularly in order to achieve that. That moksha, that heaven, that liberation, whatever the end, the goal you have set for yourself is still within the area of thought. within the area of matter, within the area of time, within the area of matter. So you have not wandered over, you have not left thought at all. You are still caught in it. And a mind that is inquiring into meditation says, he is aware of this fact. Therefore, no system, no method, no goal, no direction, and therefore no will. Mm. Then, as we said, the things that thought has put together as sacred are not sacred, they are just Words eh, to give a significance to life. Because life, as you live, is not sacred, is not holy. And the word holy, H O L Y, comes from being whole which means healthy, sane, and therefore holy. All that is implied in that word. So a mind, please follow all this, a mind that is functioning through thought, however desirous it be 
to find the sa- that which is sacred is still acting within the field of time, within the field of fragmentation. So then, can the mind be whole, not fragmented? This is all part of the understanding of what is meditation. Can the mind, which is the product of evolution, product of time, product of so much influences, so many hurts, so many travails, such great sorrow, great anxiety, it's caught in all that. And all that is the result of thought. And thought, as we said, is fragmentary by its very nature. And mind is the result of thought, as it is now. So, can the mind be free of the movement of thought. So can the mind be completely non-fragmented? You following this? Can your mind be non-fragmented? Can you look at life as a whole? As a whole? That is, you know what whole means, don't you? Need I go into that? You know it. I don't waste time on that kind of stuff. Can the mind be whole, which means without a single fragment? Therefore, diligence comes into this. A mind is whole when it is diligent, care attentive, which means to be care, to have care means to have great affection, great love, which is totally different from the love of a man and a woman, which is lustful sex and all that which we went to in the other day, which we into, into which we won't go now. So, the mind that is whole is attentive and therefore care and this quality of deep abiding sense of love such a mind is the whole, is the whole that you come upon when you begin to inquire what is meditation then we can proceed to find out what is sacred. That, please listen, it's your life. Give your heart and mind to find out a way of living differently. Which means when the mind has abandoned all control 
It does not mean that you lead a life of doing what you like, yielding to every desire, to every lustful glance or reaction, to every pleasure, to every demand of the pursuit of pleasure, but to find out, to find out whether you can live a daily life without a single control. That's part of meditation. That means one has to have this quality of attention. That attention which has brought about the insight into the right place of thought, and thought is fragmentary, and where there is control, there is the controller and the control which is fragmentary. So to find out a life, a way of living, without a single control, That requires tremendous attention, great discipline. Not the discipline that you are to, you are accustomed to, which is merely suppression, control, conformity. But we are talking of a discipline which means to learn. The word discipline comes from the word disciple. The disciple is there to learn. Now here there is no teacher, no disciple. You are the teacher and you are the disciple. If you are learning. And that very act of learning is, brings about its own order. Now, thought has found its own place, its right place. So the mind is no longer burdened with the movement as a material process which is thought, which means the mind is absolutely quiet. It is naturally quiet, not made quiet. That which is made quiet is terrible. That which is that which happens to be quiet, in that quietness, in that emptiness, a new thing can take place. Right? So Can the mind, your mind, be absolutely quiet without control? Without the movement of thought, it will be quiet naturally if you really have the insight to 
in the inside which brings about the right place for thought. From there, thought then becomes thought has its right place, therefore the mind is quiet. You understand what the word silence and quiet means? You know you can make mind quiet by taking a drug, by repeating a mantra or a word, constantly repeating, repeating, repeating. Naturally, your mind will become quiet, and that such a mind is a dull, stupid mind. And you call that transcendental meditation or whatever you like to call it. And there is a silence between two noises. There is silence between two notes. There is silence between two movements of thought. There is silence of an evening, when the birds have made their noise, chattering, and have gone to bed, and there isn't a fluttering among the leaves, there is no breeze, there is absolute quietness, not in a city, but you are out with nature, when you are among the trees, or sitting in the banks of a river. The silence descends on the earth, and you are part of that silence. So there are different kinds of silence. But the silence we are talking about, the quietness of a mind, that silence is not to be bought, is not to be practised, is not so- something you gain, a reward, a compensation to an ugly life. It's only when the ugly life has been transformed into the good life. The good, I mean, not having plenty, but the life of goodness, the flowering of that goodness, the beauty, then now the silence comes. <coughs> 